Hey, welcome back for another podcast. In this episode, I've got Jacob, the Chief Commercial Officer and co-founder of Australis on board. For those of you who've been following me for any period of time will know that I'm an ex-semi-professional Counter-Strike player. And if you do follow CSGO at all, you know that Australis is one of, if not the most dominant CSGO team of all time. So it's an honor to have Jacob on today to talk about a lot of things. And I actually learned a lot from this podcast. Um, there are a few bits of terminology and ways of thinking that Australis and, and Jacob pushed to me that's different than what I've ever thought about before, some different ways of looking at influencers versus esports, and there's some things I'm going to be thinking about and maybe making some more content as I kind of uh, decompress and, and go through those things in my mind. Um, this episode of the podcast is sponsored by Capsule Entertainment and the Bash Open League, um, and we talk about that in the podcast for a little bit as well. Hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed it. Jacob, mate, we're live. How are you? I'm very good. I'm very good. And you? Yeah, good man. Look, as a as a CSGO fan and and uh, ex aspiring pro player, it's it's great to talk to someone who helps to run you know one of the most most ever dominant teams in CSGO. So it's good to have you. The most dominant team ever. Huh? The most dominant. Team ever. <laughs> <laughs> I guess, and I guess you you'd be right to make that claim, right? Because you know, I guess NIP dominated um, in CSGO in the early stages. But let's be honest, CSGO when I played semi pro was that stage, and it was a terrible game back then. It was full of bugs, had lots of problems, and when you guys dominated, it was a much more competitive landscape. Yeah, I think you know they they had a great run, no question about it. But I think they also were by far the first ones to really see the potential of the game. I mean, I remember mm-hmm. my players back then who were switching from from Source in one point six. They were mainly focused on the fact that they could set fire to stuff with Molotovs and they were just laughing while they were playing and they couldn't really take it seriously and said, this game is never going to be great. I yeah. think, I think the NIP guys saw it early on and they, 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 they invested the time and, and, and efforts needed to, to become the big, the best. Yeah. And I think like literally just saying it again, I think that people who are in the esports scene these days don't realize how it really was not a good game when it first came out. And like the biggest global tournaments, like uh, I'm trying to think of I'm trying to think of some of the names, like, you know, face it, face it. I remember when they ran the first tournament with that M1A1S skin and that was huge tournament prize pool. And that was 40K, you know, at that stage. And now obviously, you know, million dollar majors and et cetera, it's, it's just pales in comparison. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's it's I, I, the one example I always use when I laugh about these things. I remember Frackbite ran an online tournament back in the day with yeah. fifteen thousand US dollars in in prizes, I think, and they called it the champions or sort of the class of champions, and it was all the major winners up until that point who faced each other. So back yeah, then, for fifteen thousand dollars, you could invite all the greatest team in the history of Counter Strike. It costs <laughs> a little bit more these days. That's pretty crazy. And the one of the things that was most exciting, like you said. Um, for, for fans and players alike was the combination of, of CS Source and CS 1.6. So for like those people who are watching who don't realize they were bitter, bitter enemies and usually it was region-based. You know, here in Australia, we played Source. Um, in the US, they did have some um, people stayed with 1.6, but primarily it was Source. But over in Europe, um, except for France, it was primarily CS 1.6. But it was fantastic to finally see like these two disciplines of people coming together. It's almost like the start of the UFC. It's like who's going to win, like karate versus wrestler. And the same with this, you got to see, you know, CS 1.6, you could see them as more purists. They prefer to stay with the old game because the game was a lot harder, you know, through bugs that became features um, primarily. Whereas Source was, I mean, if you go back and watch Counter Strike Source, you know, I used to think it was a hard game, but you find that mostly it's, it's five bullet sprays to the chest uh, where most of the kills happen from. So it's a bit more of a, you could say an arcadey game, I guess. 
Yeah, I think the problem is that, you know, you have to consider every game sort of a living organism that de- it develops and evolves as, as, it's getting, as it's getting played and as it's getting developed by the, by the company behind it. And I think a lot of the 1.6 players tried the first versions of Source and thought they were quite bad. Mm-hmm. And then they just never tried it again. And then yeah. when, when, when people spoke to them about Source, they thought of the Source that they tried a year and a half ago that was absolutely terrible, but the game was in a much better state. But I think at the end of the day, Counter-Strike Global Offensive is, I would say, from sort of a holistic approach, the best Counter-Strike game so far. But I think from, mm-hmm. from, from uh, there's probably a lot of people who will argue with me that from a competitive standpoint and sort of balance perspective, 1.5 is, is the golden child. 1.5 there you go so i guess it's like um i guess if you were to think of the birthplace of esports as a whole you'd have a, you'd have to give it to games like quake live 1.6 and, and starcraft but you know games have to they have to evolve and i guess what makes these games so popular is not only are they competitive esports but they have to be decent for casuals and obviously starcraft 2 and quake they're not as open for casual players to come in as something like csgo so i guess that's why csgo still reigns supreme as a t1 after all these years yeah i think i think you you, you cannot discard sort of the the games need to look good the game needs to feel good. They need to flow. And I think, you know, no, no casual viewers who's going to watch Counter-Strike for the first time in their life, if they watched 1.3 or 1.5, is going to think, wow, that game is really nicely balanced. They, don't, they can't feel that. They can't see that. And I think, you know, Counter-Strike Global Offensive has an expression that works quite well on TV and it looks okay. Because, like, I remember, you know, I had a conversation back in the day when we did 1.6 tournaments with a potential sponsor of a graphic card. And I said, oh, you need to sponsor this tournament. And he's like, I mean, you can run you can run Counter Strike one point six with your unbought graphic card. Yeah. Why should I spend my like money on that? Like, yeah, that, that's uh, <laughs> that's probably true. So I think yeah. I think you know, Global Offensive has, has found a pretty good balance and looks good. But again, you know, that's this is the interesting thing about esports compared to sports, right? You know, the mm. platform upon which the the rules and laws are is sort of, is sort of always changing. So imagine you know football in a world where gravity also all of a sudden could change. You could do new things with gravity, like. Football would be a crazy sport. So, so the reality upon which the games are set can can constantly change, and I think that's one of the things that that's really interesting about the future of esports is where are we going to go? Is it VR? Is it AR? Is it something we don't know anything about yet? And I think that's that's what what's really interesting about this space is that we we have no way of saying what this is in twenty years. Yeah, it's really funny you brought out that graphics card thing, but I realized that we we jumped into so much that A, I didn't get you to introduce yourself, and B, I didn't do the ad read. So let me do let me do the ad read quickly, and and then we'll get back into it. So uh, this this podcast is sponsored by the Bash Open by Capsule Entertainment. So if anyone's following me on LinkedIn, who's watching now, you'll see that I've been talking quite a lot about mobile esports recently, the rise of it in Southeast Asia, the absolutely insane numbers that are behind it, and some of the Western teams like Team Secret are starting to advance into that region. The Bash Open is a tournament for amateur mobile gamers across numerous Asian countries backed by brands like Red Bull and Razer and features over 300 teams participating in two titles. Uh, Bash Entertainment is a platform, which is an interesting one, which is mobile first on Android. So if you've got an Android phone, you can look it up on the Google Play Store or you can go to capsl.cc to look it up. But essentially, it's a platform that allows you to create a mobile esports tournament in 30 seconds. There's a bunch of other platforms that are like this that are PC only and browser-based, but obviously with Southeast Asia or Asia as a whole being mobile first, it makes sense to go there. So check them out. But Jacob, just uh, I guess before we get into that, because... Uh, I got a, a an add-on, I guess I want to ask you about that graphics card statement that you made uh, before. Can you just give a little bit of an intro into yourself, um, the company you work for and, and its position in the market? 
Sure. So I'm Jacob Christensen. I am the chief commercial officer and co-founder of Astralis. Uh, I'm, I'm a, a bit of an esports veteran. I think, you know, for, for many of the people who are involved in this space and the many of people who have been here for a couple of years, I'm very old school. But from, from my perspective, I'm not very old school. I'm, I am what, what I would probably refer to as a sort of second generation esports. Uh, the first generation was the Quake players, uh, the do like the, the different variations that led up until Counter Strike. When Counter Strike started coming out, I was about twelve years old, so I played it. But I was by very very far away from being relevant in the esports scene. That took a couple of years, but I've pretty much been doing everything from you know running teams to running IRC channels back in the day to writing on websites to. Like I was, I was a, I was a writer for NIP when it relaunched back with the Heat on Party Al team together with uh, Mira, who's a big uh, writer in HLTV now. It's it's so long ago. Uh, then I ran Copenhagen Wolves, which was sort of my first serious thing that turned into an actual full time job, or what what was supposed to be one. Uh, and then in 2016 in January, I founded Astralis uh, together with the players and Frederick Busco. Um, and from there, we sort of. Those last five years, this January has sort of been full circle for me. So we went from Astralis to Refresh Entertainment, which was sort of a portfolio company that ran Blast Pro Series, uh, Origin, Astralis, uh, Gods, and a couple of other brands. All the way back to sort of uh, last summer, not this summer, but last summer, we sort of split the company in two. Me and my co-founder of Refresh, Nikolai Nuhan, bought out the team side of the business which was Astralis, Origin, and Future FC, uh, Counter-Strike, League of Legends, and FIFA, and and now sort of rebranded it all back into Astralis. So for me, the, the last five years has been like from one thing all the way around and then back to that one thing again. And on the day-to-day, I run all commercial operations, basically. It was funny you were saying about feeling like you're a second generation, I guess, esports guy. Like what, what kind of year is that? When did you start um, working, even if it's volunteer within the space? When did you start taking esports seriously? I think I was about 15, so that must be 17 years ago. I started yeah. like, you know, pretending that I wasn't 15, that I was actually 18. Because back <laughs> then you could start a team by renting a game server. If you had yeah. a game server, the, the team could play for you. I mean, I had guys who were later become quite professional players simply there because I had a game server. Uh, mm-hmm. So I started doing all these different things. And then that sort of grew until I was around 18. Then it started getting a little bit more, uh, a little bit more serious. And then I think, you know, the foundation of uh, Copenhagen Wolves was like the first time I really, and, and we won a spot in the EU LCS, which was a very sort of famous history here in, in Denmark because we had Bjergsen as our mid laner mm-hmm. who was supposed to play. And then a week before or two weeks before the qualifier, we were told that he couldn't play because he was too young. So Bjergsen was 15 at the time. So we just signed some random guy. Like we had like two days on solo queue to find a player <laughs> and we still qualified. So that was quite something. We went from like, you know, having five players that I barely paid any salary to needing to pay them full-time salaries, have a house in Cologne. And like, it was just, I mean, when I think back of it now, my, as we would say in the 80s, my blue-eyed optimism of what I thought I could do and couldn't do was absolutely batshit crazy. But I think, you know, that's how you get where you are today, right? You know, you just have a faith, yeah. have faith in you can actually deliver on this and then you just do your best. So the, you, you said, obviously, you guys incorporated from Australis into Refresh as a portfolio company. So, um, you know, within that portfolio company, you had an esports league. Why why the separation? Is it because you wanted to focus primarily on teams where you're sitting today? Do you not see the upside in the, in the leagues? Was it um, some internal discussions that people wanted to split ways, different management? Like, what's the major reasons for that? I think I can start by sort of my personal side of things. Um, yeah. Astralis was something that I started because I 
dreamt about it basically like i i was sitting at my i i i know i have it somewhere and i want to find it so badly i have like a notebook where i'm sitting there drawing stars and like the first our logo is actually one of them or close to i needed a professional designer to sort of sharpen it up but like i was playing around with names and i had a list of like 25 different names that i thought we could do a little bit of sort of insider information astralis was actually supposed to be named something else uh, we were we were having the plans of calling it Spirit of Amiga, which is like this, the most legendary sort of Counter-Strike name in Danish history, Soa. Okay. Um, and then we took it to the lawyers and they said, yeah, anything computer related with Amiga in it, just yeah, you can't right. do that. There's too many, too many trademarks. But yeah, I mean, for me, Astralis was a passion project. I think Blast was more of a board decision, a necessity thing. I, I loved it and I'm very proud of what these guys have built it into. I think it's a great product. Um, but for me, the passion point was always the teams. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so that, that decision was very easy for me. Uh, you know, I think we as a company made a decision to sell the teams off. And then I made it very clear to my co-founder and the board that I would like to go with the teams. You know, that, that's where I want to go. And then I spoke to Nikolai about it. And he looked at me and said, why don't we buy the teams then? And then we went through a process where we did a management buy, a buyout and we eventually bought the teams out. So I think, I think also you have to remember that most of the investors in Refresh was venture. And venture usually likes, uh, you know, big reward, high risk. And I think mm-hmm. Blast is more big reward, high risk, where, where the teams is more of a long, greedy sort of a path to, to hopefully something great. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. It's something I've been I've talked about, I guess, in the past a lot of content, but not recently, is just trying to help people understand the difference between VCs wanting that sexy scalable product mm. compared to some other things which are not quite as sexy, like sometimes esports teams, other times back-end products. But um, mm. you know, can can make some decent money. You know, owning a owning a million dollar property portfolio that, that gives you you know a few percent returns that's the furthest from sexy you could possibly have, or some slow growth stocks. But you know, many people do do make a great living out of that. But you're not making you know newsy headlines, you know, TO headlines or Forbes headlines by doing something that's stable. <laughs> no, I think you have to remember that the venture funds more than anything look for things where they can apply cash to create growth or, or grab land. That's basically what they want to do. And, and if you haven't, if you can build a business where they get an, an, an exponential more value based on how much cash they throw in, they can find a lot of cash. And I think with teams, it's more of a grind. I mean, like, yeah, we could buy a, a spot in the call of duty league, for example, but does that mean that our revenue goes up? A little bit, but you know, we also have to find the sponsors. We also have to make the team work. We also have to do all these different things. So I think for them, the, the, the sort of the value proposition around Blast and sort of the media side of esports was just easier to understand and easier to execute on. So it, it made a lot of sense for them to, to sort of focus on that part where again, you know, we with Astralis sees this more as a, you know, 10, 20 year project. Uh, that we want to build over a very, very, very long time. And, and the focus is more to build sort of a sustainable business that can grow organically more than, than just, you know, getting as much air into the balloon as possible. Yeah, that's a good explanation. Yeah, and it was funny the other thing you said about being a you know second generation esports guy. I guess that probably would make me a third. I'd say you know I've been about ten to twelve years, and it's always funny when you you know when you get people come up to you and say, "Hey, you know you're a, such a veteran in the industry," but I just don't feel like one at all compared to like a Jens Hilger or compared to you know the guys that led the way for creating ESL. Um, you know, and, and running those tournaments at a small internet cafes. Like at one stage I was playing in those tournaments as a little, you know, not as a kid, but as an 18, 19 year old playing CSGO or playing LAN parties at 15 and I'm playing mm. Battlefield 2 and things like that. Like I still feel like I'm 
so infinite in the industry compared to those guys. But, you know, there's not, not that many of those around these days. No, there's, there's not a lot left. And I think, you know, obviously the, <laughs> I had this conversation with Danny as well, Sonic, our coach. Like, you know, he, he was like, ah, if only I'd been born like five or six years later, I would have been the greatest player in the world right now. And I would have made <laughs> a lot more than I did back then. But I think yeah. obviously he's in a very fortunate situation, so he can't complain. Um, yeah. I think, you know, it, it, to me, it's just been a mix of sort of being good at what I do and being quite lucky with the timing, to be honest. Because I think you know, there was a lot of projects historically in Denmark that had the same sort of framework as Astralis have had, some of the same ambitions and, and, and sort of uh, pushes, but the market just wasn't ready for it. Mm. Why Why is Denmark so advanced as, as far as it comes to esports? I think, I think it's, I always say like, I think it's two things. Or actually, I think it's three, three things. So one thing is we're quite antisocial. <laughs> People are going to hate me for saying this. <laughs> but like, you know, like, we had a London office in Refresh and I was in London quite a lot. And I think, you know, as soon as sort of office hours is over, everyone goes to a pub. Yeah. You know, everyone goes out and they stand on the street and they talk and they hang out and do all these different things. In Denmark, the weather is shitty to be honest. And we spend a lot of time indoor. And I think we sort of accept that that is okay. Like if you mm-hmm. want to be by yourself, be by yourself. So I think that sort of plays into it. And then I think we've, we're quite advanced technologically, technologically. So we like, we, we, a lot of kids had great computers and fast internet very fast, like before a lot of other countries had it. So I think that plays into it as well. Mm-hmm. And then I think the, the third one is that we have a little bit of a, I think actually the wide right th- term for it is Napoleon complex. You know, look, Danish people, if we're good at anything, we will celebrate it. Like yeah, we right. won a silver medal, I think in curling or something back in the day. And there was like parade in the city. Like we would just, we will celebrate whatever we can celebrate. So I think once we sort of found the success yeah. that we did in esports, it just sort of grew a lot. Like this was something that we were proud of. And I think a lot of people backed, backed that up. But I mean, you know, the crazy part is, yes, we're good at Counter-Strike, but we're good at a lot of other things as well. Like if you look at sort of League of Legends, et cetera, we've been historically insanely dominant uh i think you know per capita we have the highest amount of pro league players outside of korea china and the u.s who has their own leagues but it's just yeah i don't know what it is but but there's something here that that definitely works for us in computers yeah it's always been interesting to me i talked to um harley oliver or dsn who played with you know Fnatic's dominant team in 1.6 and asked him the same question about sweden like i've I've always wondered you know why denmark finland and sweden have been so far ahead for many years in counter-strike compared to you know any other esport or or even just with esports pros and his his answer i talked to him at the im sydney and his answer was very similar to yours primarily was around it being so cold outside that people want to stay inside about um internet and also access to computers and it, it seems like internet's pretty important oh look i mean like when, when we played tournaments like way back in the day there were always a couple of teams from sort of weird small swedish cities but that was because the government had put in like a super fiber internet in that city and then all of a sudden they were all great at counter-strike so yeah, like right. umeo is like a small swedish city, like 12 hours from denmark just straight up through sweden they mm-hmm. always had like three or four great teams in counter-strike because they were yeah. one of the first sort of, of sort of non-centralized uh, cities that had very, very, very fast internet. Yeah. So yeah, I think that has that that's a big part of it. Yeah, and that probably explains why Australians have so many good influences because we're funny, but not that much <laughs> great in esports because our internet's terrible here. <laughs> we're like, I think we're ranked like 60th in the world for internet speed or something like that. While being yeah. in a first world country, it's pretty abysmal. <laughs> so what's the like? 
Can you walk me through, and I know this is a very big question, but can you walk me through the, the basis of pathway to profitability for an esports team? Like to me, it seems like, um, you know, there's it, people have been talking about esports player salaries in the wings for a long time. Now Cloud9 mm. has started to post what their salaries are. Um, their salaries are huge, you know, compared to what you're expecting from sponsorship a lot of the time. So I guess it's a double part question. Like what's the, f- first off, like are the sponsorship and the money coming in, are they are they scaling well with those salaries that are increasing if, if, if they are your main costs? And then what's the pathway to profitability look like for you guys? Is it alternative revenue streams? Is it simply just getting more money from the people who currently work with you? Like, like walk me through that basic. So I, I think... At, at least from sort of outside the space, the biggest misconception is the fact that an esports team is only as valuable as sort of the the books say it is. You know, like, can you make a profit and that is your profit? I completely disagree. I think if you look at American sports, the by far best uh, appreciating asset that there is is ownership in franchise leagues. Mm-hmm. Look at MLS, look at NBA, look at NFL. Like, you know, and, and even the worst NBA teams now is at around $1.1, $1.2 billion worth, which yeah. is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, That's like you could get an NBA franchise for like $250 million 10, 15 years ago. So so I think I think that is where you're really going to see the value. And I think what, what we're sort of looking into is can we create a business that runs with a profit? I think, I think that's possible with a, with a pretty decent profit while also sitting on the best sort of assets in the space that's going to be appreciating. Because I think nobody's going to, if you're going to evaluate an NBA franchise, nobody's going to look at, oh, what is, the, what is the revenue of that franchise? That doesn't really matter. Like what matters is they hold the spot at the table and there's only a finite amount of spots at the table. And with that spot comes a lot of attention, comes a lot of money from media rights, et cetera. So, mm-hmm. so for us, you know, we, we sort of see the sponsorships, et cetera, as, the, as sort of the underlying foundation of what we do. Uh, we want to get to a point where our everyday business on a day-to-day, EBITDA, you know, sort of presence just, just runs and, and is in the bonus. But what, what, what's really interesting for us is what can we, what is the land that we can grab in regards to sort of finite value in, in franchise spots? And I think, you know, you got, we got a spot in the LEC. Which is, I mean, look, just look at the U.S. where where some of the the slots that were bought originally has already been trading at three x value, so that mm-hmm. asset is absolutely massively valuable. Um, we have spots in Blast Pro Series with the Counter Strike team. We have spots in ESL Pro League, and I think sort of this system creates the stability and sort of the the predictability that is needed for both the tournament organizers and the teams and the players to sort of plan their future and actually sign long-term partnership deals. Because for us now, historically, we used to do, you know, one-year deals in eSports because nobody knew what was going to happen. Do you even have the same players in your roster in six months? Now we're in a position where a lot of the deals that we're doing is three-plus years because we can actually predict the future. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, the the path to profitability, my, my sort of, take on this is a little bit limited by the fact that we're a public company. So I obviously can't dive in, in too deeply besides what we've already said publicly, but I think originally our goal was for this year to, to become profitable. Um, COVID-19 made that quite hard, uh, but, but not impossible. Uh, so I think, I think we will get there eventually. Um, and that's going to be primarily driven by sponsorships still. Uh, mm. But what we hope to see and what we will see is, is sort of, this more model of what you look in in regular sports club where sponsorships is not eighty percent of your revenue. It's it's thirty five ish. Yeah, that's and that's always been a really interesting thing to me. Like, I'm glad you mentioned. Um, you know, we're obviously on the same page about ownership of that asset. You know, we had um, 
one of the head of commercials from AEG on before, and he talked about exactly that. You know, they bought they bought a bunch of MLS teams when they were dirt cheap, and you know they've sold most of them, but held on to one. And talking about that appreciating asset as far as that goes, and it's always been interesting to me that you know if traditional sports teams aren't often expected to turn a profit and they often don't, you know, even in the English premier league, they, they can lose millions of pounds um, per right. year in operations. Why, why does somebody expect a, a whole other industry like esports, which mirrors sports so well to be insanely profitable from second year, third year, when these teams haven't been able to do it in 40, 50, sometimes a hundred years of operations, but they do hold on to that asset. You know, if you want to buy, I would, it's, it's eye-watering to think how much, you know, these EPL teams are worth billions of dollars over that series of time. Yeah, but I think I think the, the problem also historically has been for eSport that the, the, the way in has been, if you want to invest into eSport and you want to sort of build something, the way in has been players. So mm. imagine that someone signs the starting 11 of Manchester United because they all have contract that runs out on the same day. And then the league is like, oh yeah, now you have the Premier League spot. And Manchester United yeah. is like, what? You know, that how, that's how it used to work. So I think that, that sort of inflated the market because everybody who came in didn't invest heavily in coaching staff. They didn't invest in infrastructure. They didn't invest in anything other than just say, look, instead of buying a team, I can just give these guys a humongous salary and then I'll bring them over to my side and then I'll have all the spots. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that sort of, that, that works for the players. <laughs> it doesn't really work for the, doesn't really build any value for sort of the infrastructure around esports in general. Yeah. Uh, and, and if there's a hundred people waiting to invest into this and do it that way, it's sustainable. But as soon as there's not people ready to invest in, then the whole thing crashes because all the salaries are then 4x what they should have been. So I think mm-hmm. esport now is, is, I've always called it sort of the, the big correction. I think over the next couple of years, we're really going to see who's actually here and knows what they're doing and are building something sustainable and who were just here massively overpaid, oversold the, this whole thing to their venture fund partners and then sort of hope to catch up. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, we're already seeing that with, with some teams sort of turning the key uh, where COVID-19 is sort of the accelerator of that decision. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess it, you know, Optic would be a prime example of that, right? You know, sold into a conglomerate. And now it's back mm-hmm. with the man who started it all. Who actually knows how to build a sustainable business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's done very, you know, led led the industry, especially as far as content creation and fan generation has gone. That's for sure. Besides phase, that'd be mm. that'd be equal number one or number two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had I had another point to add into there, but I completely forgot what it was. So while <laughs> while I try to remember what that is, oh yeah, it was about the it was about the players and the way that teams were generated. I think people from the outside probably won't understand that how much of a boys club even now or up until now, like a lot of these teams have been, it's, you know, one player will only join a team if his mate comes as well, whether his mate is actually good or not, you know, they're the ones that come together. There's groups of four that may bully the fifth. And, you know, even, even I had that, that trouble back in 2013 when I was a semi pro, you know, we were, we were playing 30 hours a week while all of us were working full time. You know, we're, we're taking a really serious run wanting to end up becoming, you know, overseas players, but unfortunately got dominated by Vox Emil that became renegades. But, um, mm. you know, we had a lot of trouble always finding a fifth. We could find four guys that work together. Um, but you know, that fifth it's, it's hard when you've got an odd number because generally you pair up. And there's two mates that hold a bomb site together. They're good friends and they want to go team to team to team. But then mm. when you try to find that fifth person, sometimes it's the, it's the odd one out. I'd be interested to learn from you. You know, Australis has kept the same, pretty much the same lineup for, you know, forever. So I'd be mm. interested in learning from you. Like what's your, what's your recruitment process as far as that stuff goes? What's your, what's your retention um, like with these players? How do you make sure that they stay around and don't float from team to team? Because even professional teams these days, you see that players will go from cloud nine to, to phase and back, et cetera. I think sort of the, the 
the power of the players is, is a blessing and a curse for them. Um, you know, the, the way teams were built historically was basically, you know, oh, you know, I like this guy and I don't like this guy. Kindergarten, playground rules. Yeah. If, as soon as I'm afraid that you might don't like, you may be not like me, I'll scheme with the other three to get you kicked out. Yeah. I think you know, there was no accountability. There was no system for sort of how do you do with issues? How do you deal with stuff? And I think that sort of led to the easy decision was, oh, this is the odd man out. Let's kick him and just we'll, we'll say that he was the cause of all our problems. Um, I think what Casper what Witt, our sports director, managed to build and, and, and big kudos to the players for buying into it is he built a system and a framework for sort of clearing these things out. And I think once you put players in a situation where you know, they don't have to think about anything other than playing. They don't have to think about, can I say this to this guy? Is he then going to get mad? Is he then going to get me kicked? And la, 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 la. I think, I mean, like, look, I can predict a lot of the big tournaments, how a team is going to play, just depending on how they look at each other and how they talk to each other when they arrive at the hotel. You know, it's, it's easy to see if this is going to work or if this, not, this is not going to work. And this is the same way that Casper has a rule that, like, he doesn't need to watch their practice. He just listens to their practice. Because by that, he can tell everything. Like, he, everything he needs to know is there. Mm-hmm. So I think for that, it, it really is, you know, you know, you need to have a system where the players don't make the changes because then they're going to be thinking about those changes instead of thinking about where to be on the server. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that, that sort of, that is what we're trying to build. But then obviously there's also, there will come a time where we will need to change one of those players. And then the question comes, do we, have we actually built the system to do it or not to do it? And I think that's what we're trying to sort of, sort of find out now and build it right away. That's why we have, you know, easy tech sitting on the bench or hat easy tech sitting on the bench now have Poopski. So we want to have that flexibility and we want to create an environment where the end goal is the performance, not the paycheck, not, not, you know, keeping your friends on the team because you want him to keep getting paid. So it, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think, you know, it, it's something that that's going to find its own system over the next, you know, couple of years. Um, but again, you know, it, it is, it, it, it is an ongoing issue in esports that you sort of have to, to to adjust the power dynamics to what actually makes sense. And and we don't know how we don't have the perfect plan. Like nobody really has the perfect plan. I think it's going to be something that we're going to have to find among teams, coaches and players. Mm, yeah. And I wonder if it's something that's always going to exist in some form or another, because if you've got an NFL team, they've got a starting roster of what, 40, 50, something like that. There's no way that all those guys are going to be mates. And that's good because, you know, they can get put into that system of let's just pick who's best to play with. And it's the same as being in the military. You know, you got to trust the guy on your left and the guy on your right. But, but you know, that's it when you're playing that kind of line linebacker style game. But when it's Counter-Strike and you're, you know, traveling to these guys, especially, you know, three to five years ago, you, you're sleeping three people to a single hotel room um you know you're playing with the same players for 30 50 60 hours a week week on week not having any breaks like it's it, it's impossible not to yeah. not to become invested in your teammates and not to have people start to argue the same way that best mates will live together um move out of home live together and start arguing yeah i think it's, it's always going to be a problem and you could even see it in the nba these days you know if if, if an upcoming big free agent has an agent, sorry, big free agent, the, his agent, his other clients are going to get signed too, expen- signed too expensively because people want to be friends with the agent. So, you know, I think it's always going to happen in sports, but I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll eventually find the right solution for this. And I think, you know, it is, it is, you know, at the end of the day, the performance and the product is the most important thing uh, because that is what the fans love. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's, we need to find a solution to that, but we'll get there. I'm not, I'm not too worried about that. 
There was a good question in the in the LinkedIn live chat actually from from Ardian, and I think you've already pre-answered maybe all of it or most of it about you know how you guys get the get the players to buy in. But his question was around uh, what organizational advantages do Australis have over other teams? So if you take out the players as a whole, like what what advantage does the uh, operational and the and the overarching structure have from Australis versus other teams? I, I think ultimately well, there's there's sort of a, there's a couple of things. You know, one thing is we have a, a very, very well-mixed sort of leadership group. So, you know, we have people from really sort of pro-serious entertainment and sports. People run big football clubs, big stadiums, all these different things. You know, we have people like my partner, Nikolai, who comes from a tech background. Like he understands how to scale businesses, how to create products. Great strategic mind. You have someone like me who slept under the table and drank cocktail back in the days, which is like an, uh, there's an internal Danish joke. It's, a, it's a, like a co- cocoa milk. We used to, there's like a, it's a lingo here that, that that's what the gamers drink. Yeah. So, and then we have Casper who was actually sort of the, the team captain of the Danish national team in handball and a, and a Danish icon sort of a sport. So we, you have all these different people who can each bring their perspective. And, and, and I think what you see in a lot of other esports teams is you see an either or. Either you have someone who's completely from the outside who wants to run it like it is from the outside, or you have someone who's completely on the inside and isn't maybe ready to, to cede some of the control to the people from the outside. So I think we, we have quite a good mix there. Um, and then I think the other thing that we always sort of pride ourselves on is that we always look at this long term. Like we are in a financial situation and we are in a way that we're building this. We're, we're not going to make sort of hastily decisions that's going to fix things for us in the next month. We think long term. So if we need to pluck out two players of the lineup to give them the break that they need, we do not care about losing the next couple of tournaments. That's fine because we believe that we want to win longer term. So I think, you know, one of the difference between, I think a lot of other teams go into 21 and saying, oh yeah, we would like to win a major. That's not how we work. Casper says, okay, I would like to win three majors over the next five years. And then we plan for that instead. So if we lose the next cup coming major, it's actually not a problem because we have four more tries. And that sort of creates a different perspective on things where some other teams will not win the major and they'll start yelling at each other and be like, oh, we didn't do it. We sort of always keep the long perspective on things and we want to build something sustainable and right and not just sort of what is right in front of our noses. You know, something I never thought about before, but I just thought about then when you were talking about it is does it does it become like a physical sports tournament then where you're aiming as a team to peak for a tournament? Because in the past, CSGO has been go, 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 go. It's just flying from one tournament to the next. You fly from IAM in Sydney, you know, then you then you fly over to Germany and then you fly from there to Brazil and it's nonstop playing. You're just trying to win all the time. Does it become more like if you're a fighter in the UFC, you know that you've got to fight in 12 weeks. You know that that's when your diet has to be dialed in. You train much harder than ever before but mm. your body can't sustain that forever. So that's why you only fight maximum three, four times a year, you know, sans injuries or something like that. Is that? Yeah, but yeah I, I agree. But I think it's also, this comes back to sort of the lineup issue, right? If you believe that if you don't win the next tournament, someone is going to get kicked, then you can take a break because that does the system mm-hmm. doesn't allow you to do that. But we want to create that system. I mean, I remember Casper had a conversation with the players after we won the first major and then didn't win the next one. And they're like, yeah, you know, the, everybody's saying the era is over. He's like, Nadal won his first tennis tournament when he was 19, like his first Grand Slam. He didn't win another one for, I think, like three or four years. Do you think people told a 20-year-old Nadal that his era was over? Of course they didn't tell him it was over. Like, our era is 10 years. I think that is sort of the legacy that we want to build. In our side, we're only halfway, if even halfway, through the Astralis era. Because this Mm -hmm. is we want to have continual dominance over a 10-year period and not just six months or nine months. 
Yeah, I feel like after after seeing some, seeing some success in my own business, I can definitely see some likeness between that. So you see this with esports teams a lot, or even you know my company when we were smaller and, and struggling a bit, which is you, you're desperate for the win the same way that you're desperate for the sell. And you see some esports companies, all they want to do is they want to get the brand across the line, and they want to they want to get that hundred k in because they know that hundred k is going to get them an extra three months and it's going to keep them alive. Yeah. Um, but they're actually focused on whether it's good or not. And it makes sense that, you know, the winning does come when the team has that stress taken off them. It's not the, I need to make this sale in this meeting. Otherwise I'm going to get fired and my company's going to die. It's, 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 um, you know, it's okay if we don't win this, it's okay if we come third, fifth or sixth, because we know that we're going to peak for the next tournament and and be a bit more relaxed as we go through the year. Exactly. I think what you'll, what you'll see with our teams is what we want to, we hope to achieve is that our highest level might not be the highest of all teams. I would argue that it probably isn't Counter-Strike at least, but our lowest level has to be higher than everyone else's. So at some point during a tournament, most other teams will have at least one bad game and that's where they lose. They could have maybe won the tournament, but they had that one bad day. We don't have bad days. So mm-hmm. we always sort of, you know, the, the, one of the first things you have to learn as, as a, a professional athlete is the day where you wake up feeling bad and everything is a little bit off, that's not an excuse. You still have to perform. You still have to find a way to sort of forget that and perform. And I think that is what we really, that's what we've been quite good at. And I guess it, it builds on the business side. It obviously builds some safety into you with those three-year contracts that you talked about before. So, you know, I'm, I, um, I've been helping to broker a deal at the moment between a headset brand, a global headset brand and an Australian esports team. And it was interesting to me that the brand brought up that as well. They're looking at 24-month partnerships because mm. up until, I feel like up until even 2020, it's still not even common for these esports teams a lot of the time. But is that also part of it, that you don't feel the pressure that you need to sign on a brand and instantly win a tournament for them to be happy and stay with you? Yeah, absolutely. But I think it's also, you know, if, if your main product is winning the games, you're going to have a hard time. Like, you know, it, it's, that's just how it is. Nobody can win everything all the time. So I think for us, you know, I, I always usually say it like this, you know, for, for a lot of other teams that I talk to when I know they talk to partners is the hero piece of the activation is the logo on the jersey. And the logo on the jersey only gets exposure if you win. So, you know, you're betting on winning. Whereas for us, sort of the the logo on the jersey is a hygiene product. That's just what needs to be there to remind people of the partnership. But you want to, what you want to do is you want to identify that, you know, the fandom of a team is a passion point. And a passion point can be anything. It can be football. It can be influencers. It can be, you know, YouTubers. It can be cars, whatever. It can be wine, you know, whatever your passion point is. If you can find a way to communicate to people through their passion point and have it relatable to that passion, then you have something that's worth something. So for us, the important part is how do we activate? What kind of story are we telling with our players? And then the logo on the jersey should just be a reminder of that story. You know, when, when you look at the Logitech, you know, logo on an Astralis jersey, you shouldn't think, oh, Logitech paid them a lot of money. You should think about, oh, there's this really cool thing that Logitech and Astralis did together that I remember because it meant something to me. So yeah, I think that that's sort of how you want to switch it because then – you know, if you do a great story and you do great distribution on it, then winning the tournament just becomes the cherry on top of the Sunday. It can never be the Sunday because then you will never have a sustainable business. So does that explain more then as to what you're looking for in a commercial partner? Are you looking for one that understands it's about the content and the story? Like are they are they active in joining you on this journey generally or, or are they just, you know, a bit, bit more passive and they're relying on you to, to do that activation for them? It, it varies so much. I mean, and I think, you know, for us it doesn't, we don't need them to be super passionate and, 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 and want to know, and know everything about esports. We know everything about esports. That's what, that's what you pay us for. So that's mm-hmm. fine. But the one thing that we do demand is that you need to trust us. 
you know, historically the worst partners I've always worked with is the people who say, you know, we're currently this, but we really want to be this. And then I come and say, okay, so how about we do something that fits over here? And then they're like, nah, you know, and then they slowly move the bar and then actually we just want to do this. And then I'm like, then I can't help you because that's not, that doesn't work in our sort of environment and doesn't work with our brand. So, you know, the the best partnerships that we've had has been the ones where the partner either has a very clear knowledge of the space and what they want to do. You know, obviously, again, someone like Logitech, someone like HP Omen, they know what they want to do. They know the space. They have a lot of teams. Uh, Whereas someone like, you know, Audi out of Ingolstadt, you know, Bang & Olufsen, who's a luxury headset, you know, sound brand, TV brand. They don't know what they do, that they're doing here, but what they can say to us is who, this is who we are. This is how we work. This is what we want to do. And then we will find that connection into the passion point. And then we mm-hmm. will tell that story. So we're, we're, we're more than happy to work with brands who have no clue about the space, but the, what they need to do is they need to have a clue of who they are and they need to have a, have a, the trust in us to execute on it. There was a good question in the Twitch chat actually um, from, from a guy called, I believe it's Ninja Lowered, but um, and I'll, I'll rephrase a little bit as to how they asked it, but where, where, are, your, where are your gaps right now um, in commercial? You know, so obviously you've got, you've got most things wrapped up. Are you guys still looking for new commercial brands to, to slap on? Is there a fatigue limit where you know, there's going to be too many brands that you're trying to represent? You know, at some point, we, there's a limit. Like we don't want to work with everyone all the time all over the place. I think I think what, what, what you're going to see from us in the future is we're going to be expanding sort of our inventory a little bit in, in, an, in, an, in, a, in a way that isn't usually something that you would do. Okay. You know, so for, for the fan who has been following a lot, they would notice that, that, that there's now something called Astralis Denmark on YouTube, for example. So there's a Danish YouTube channel as well. Hmm. which has seen significant growth. So now all of a sudden I can take, we have a lot of regional partners as well, actually. Uh, we have a, I don't know if you noticed, but we have our, we just launched our own visa card together with a bank. Yeah. So you can now have an Astralis visa card. You can go into a 7-Eleven and buy your Astralis energy drink as well. So this is, <laughs> we just need a car and a couple of more things and then we have a full set. Um, yeah. But no, like we'll, we'll create ecosystems upon which we can activate these partners directly to the people that they want to talk to. Because, you know, every single partner I talk to, there's always a calculation of if I tweet about them, is it usually it's only between 25 to 45% of the people I'm reaching is actually relevant for this partner. Rest of them is irrelevant because their product is not there or they don't do, they don't have a license in that market or they, someone else is running that market. Um, so, you know, we're, we're building the ecosystems and I think, you know, we're, we're scaling it all the time. And again, because the jersey is not the primary product, we're not going to run out of jersey space because we also have a lot of partners. I mean, Bang & Olufsen is not on our jersey. You know, Luna, the bank is not on our jersey. So, mm-hmm. so we want to create the matching inventory and we want to be able to activate it. So, yeah, there's still a lot of things that we can do. Um, and then we have a lot of things in the pipeline that are, that are, that are really, really cool. So, yeah, so we, there's, there's more room to grow, but obviously – you know, at some point we're going to run out of sort of the big, the big iconic global deals that has a logo on the jersey. There was a good question in the in the LinkedIn chat as well from Chris Kizak that, that leads well into this actually, which is, um, do, you, do you see, you know, with that with that creation of the Danish thing and also you mentioned, or the Danish YouTube channel and also you mentioned influencers as well, do you see you guys diversifying or straying a little bit away from esports and going to maybe some more casual games? So his comment is that a whole bunch of different esports companies are creating like cyberpunk, 2077 content at the moment, which couldn't be further from competitive Dota 2, League of Legends, CSGO, you know, the the hardcore tier one games, which obviously you guys are known for. You know, I I will never say never, um, but but, but I think I still believe that, that even the best content creators are still sort of struggling with monetization of it. 
And I think that is sort of a, a pinch that we haven't really seen the solution to. You know, I have this theory that like for something to be really, really, really relevant and be super exciting to work with, it, it sort of has to have one of it has to have three things uh, in it. It needs to be live, it needs to be competitive, and it needs to be culturally relevant. Like if, if you can tick those three boxes, you have something very, very unique. And I think especially in a time where a lot of things are moving to VOD content, where people can skip the advertisement or they can use an ad blog or there's no advertisement because it's a streaming service, you know, the live content just has a unique value. Like there's very few can't miss moments anymore on TV and in entertainment in general. Live sports has a lot of them and in any live sort of competitive uh, entertainment format. Um, so I think that's more what we focus on. For us, the, the, the commercialization of it is more important, to be honest. I think, you know, you, you'll probably more see us move towards something that has significant media rights deals attached to it or or has a, a, a leak spot in something or owns a, a part of something that we can scale upon more than just adding a lot of content. Because I think, could we create a good, decent business around some influencers? Probably. Do we want to be an influencer agency who just takes money and passes it on and take a little cut? Uh, not, not really at this moment, no. Because I think what you want to have is you want to have a product where you can scale what you deliver more than the actual product itself. Because mm-hmm. if, if I give you one X and you pay me one Y, when I say, yeah, now I want two Y, then you say, yeah, I want two X. But, but if you can scale delivery, that's better because delivery doesn't mean more Twitter posts and more live events and more anything else. You just need to do the greatest Twitter posts and the greatest live events. And I think, I think that the business sort of on the, on the influencer side, I'm, I'm still, I still haven't really sort of found the, the golden nugget there, to be honest. But we're definitely looking at, at a lot of different ways to do things um, yeah. for the future. That comment about live definitely got me thinking. It's not something I've heard people talk about before, but it does it does make sense. Um, you know, how much is a live activation or, or a live meetup in person worth versus an uh, versus a thirty second ad roll on an influencer's channel that you can potentially skip through? And what yeah, you mean? Look, you're gonna grab a cup of coffee. You're gonna go to the bathroom. You're gonna look the other way. I mean, this this is why when we did Blast, the 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 most effective advertisement spots that we have was actually running during the game. Because people doesn't look away during the round. But if you can find a way where you implement it without taking anything away from sort of the viewership experience of it, that's where you're going to get, you know, 95% attention on it. And that's right at the sweet spot. And I guess part of the other way I'd explain is that you guys are at all times chasing the highest CPM as possible. That's what it sounds like. Oh, yeah, of course. But I think at, at the end of the day, you know, we, we are not a CPM company. Um, we are a company that creates an emotional connection. You know, you know we, we want to be the ones that, that, that gives you something that you remember. So mm. let's say that we do something with Audi and then one of our friends a year later needs to buy a car and, and he thinks to himself, of course it has to be an Audi because I remember that positive sort of association that there is with that brand. And I think, you know, if, if we go over to becoming too much of a CPM brand, we're going to be competing with Facebook ads. You're never going to have a chance against Facebook ads. So, so you know, a lot yeah. of people usually say that, you know, content is king. I don't really, I don't agree with that. For me, it's actually context is king because we provide context. If, I mean, we can do measurement that tells you that if you do an internet ad here in Denmark, you're going to get certain amount of attention on it and certain amount of conversion. But if you do an internet ad that has our player standing in it, people are going to look a lot more and they're going to look, they're going to pay more attention to your, your promotion. So that's sort of what we want to be able to do. And it makes sense, you know, drawing back to like what you said about um, not having a lot of interest in being an influencer agency at this stage where, you know, influencer agencies are, are cash flow rich, but asset poor. 
So, you mm. know, you're making a low margin a lot of the times, you know, 15% off your brand deals or, you know, after your, after your costs, you probably EBIT does down to 8% a lot of the time or 7%. And what do you own? You really own the contracts of the influencers. And if, if you know, anyone's listened to some of my content, say with Fusion Droid I did recently, 2 million subscribers on YouTube, he makes 95% of his money from direct ad revenue, not from sponsorship. So mm. if he's really unhappy with his agency, he could probably just stop doing ads for them. And it's not going to send him out of house and home. He's already bought a house cash this year as a 22-year-old <laughs> off, yeah. off ad revenue. So it's not going to worry him. He's going to live out that contract and not do anything for the brand whatsoever. As where if you've got an esports player, it's very unlikely they're going to bench themselves because they want to be a champion at the same time. And you don't have that asset of anything bar the year, the two-year contract with those guys. So, you know, i got a friend who's going through it at the moment. You know, he was thinking about selling his agency and, you know, he's made millions of dollars um, in sales, but, you know, he's, he's being offered not not a large amount for his agency. And I said, mate, it's because you don't have a brand. Your asset mm. is your contracts with influencers who essentially can probably leave at any time. So that's that's what they're buying from you. You're not buying yeah. the LEC spot. You're not buying the ESL Pro League spot like you are, say, with your growth asset that you guys are pitching your business on. Exactly. I think I just want to be clear. Obviously, I believe that it can be done. I have a tremendous amount of respect for for the guys at Night Media, who's who's running Mr. Beast, etc. Hundred Thieves, I think, is 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 pushing the envelope and, and really working hard to find the right way, and they're really on a good path there. So I think mm-hmm. it can be done. I just haven't really seen sort of the path for us to do it yet. Yeah. And they're, they're doing, and, and the answer I would say to that is they're doing very similar things to what you're talking about, which is ownership of companies. You know, you're seeing Mr. Beast release his own apps. Um, you know, just recently we saw that Barebone, which is like a, a handheld thing you can put around a mobile, you know, that's been yep. invested into by click management directly, a bunch of their largest players, you know, I think PewDiePie is an investor in that as well. You know, um, Laserbeam is one of the biggest creators in the world as a direct investor, fresh Asian with 6 million subscribers. So you're seeing these guys are starting to launch their own brands and to do these things because they realize that, you know, um, cash flow is king, but only when it's attached to something, which is also an appreciating asset at the same time. And I think some influencers of old who, you know, have maybe reached 500,000 subscribers when YouTube was new and, you know, they were starting to make that 10, 20, 30K in their pocket, realized that when their content dries up, they've got nothing left. And their YouTube is sitting there with a million followers and only 5,000 views per video. And they go, okay, now what? I'm, I've run out of money. I can't buy any more Gucci. Um, what do I do? <laughs> and they can't exactly. do anything. You can't sell that channel. You know, I got a, got a mate who's a YouTuber who wants to sell his channel at the moment. I'm saying, mate, the, the channel is attached to you. Like, I'm not sure who's going to buy it. Like, exactly. Mm, mm. So for a bit of a change of topic, something that we had a bit of a laugh about before we started is, you know, your, your leading commercial at Australis. What, what does your commercial team look like? Is it, is it just you? Do you have some sales agents that sit under you? Yeah, so so we have sort of different departments. Uh, so we, obviously, we do commercial activation across the company. It isn't just the commercial department that that runs it. So we sort of sort of getting nitty gritty. We have four different departments. We have digital, which is basically distribution, uh, which is uh, you know when do we post it, how do we post it, how do we write copy, where does it need to be, blah 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 blah. Uh, then we have production, uh, which is basically creative. Uh, that creates all the assets. There's designers, there's uh, editors, there's uh, photographers, there's all these different people who can sort of create. This is basically a factory creating sort of anything that we need to have created. Uh, Then we have what we call partnerships management, which is basically the ones who are account managers talking directly to the client, acting as the interface towards the rest of the company. And then we have uh, one sales guy in my sales team so far. So all that we've done is actually just been two two people. Um, 
but yeah, it's 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 still small, and we're we're sort of scaling it up. We're adding licensing. We're adding different different sort of aspects to that business. Um, but I think if if you look at us, you you should probably think of us more as a media agency in that regards and how the how we're built. Um, with strong internal resources, especially in, in production and digital, to, to be able to execute this. Because again, you know, running partnerships like the ones that we're running requires a lot of production and requires a lot of creativity. And it, again, you know, you can't sit there and say that we're the guys who know esports and how to do things if you don't actually know esports and how to do things. So it's, it's a big priority for us and it's something that we're, we're scaling. I found, like personally, I found every hire I've made in the esports and gaming market to be hard. Um, mm. But even more so, you know, we're trying to hire for sales and BDM at the moment, and it feels mm. like an almost impossible task. Like, where, you know, have you have you found much sales prowess in the esports space? Has there been many people that have blown you away? Because obviously, like you said, you've done it with with mainly mainly with you, and then someone else you've tacked on at the later years. You know, I think I think it's the hard part about salespeople is a lot of people sort of expect them. Now I'm one myself. I never actually intended to be one, but I just became one. Um, it takes time. You know, you need to give people the time to sort of feel the market out. You know, learn about the product, learn how to present it. I mean, like the guy that we have now, we hired him um, right around a year ago. And to be honest, like he hasn't been able to fully function on, until like six months ago. And COVID did not make that easier because he needs mm. to meet a lot of people. He needs to be in all my pitches. He needs to hear me speak about this product. And I think, you know, the, the other thing is you're talking to clients, potential clients who does not understand what this is. They don't have any sort of reference frame for what they think it is. Like if I go to a partner and say, oh, do you want to be a sponsor of a Superliga club, which is like the, the best football league in Denmark? They have a pretty good idea of what should this cost? What should I get? How many tickets? How many dinners? How many uh, advertisements on the sideboards of the, of the pitch? Et cetera, where here is like, you know, what is this thing and what can it actually do? And I think, you know, that, that it takes a special kind of person. And I think a lot of people who are coming from, from normal sports and other places who sort of seize the space and think, oh, I want to be in this space, they cannot find that sort of solution. I think, you know, it, it, it's an emotional product. Um, I mean, like I always said, like I, I had a, I've been in meetings where I pitched someone and I said, okay, this is 100,000 euros a year. And they look at me going like, you're crazy. I'm never going to pay you that. And I've been in meetings where I said, yeah, this is uh, 1.5 million euros a year. And like, yeah, okay. That probably makes sense. So I think, mm. how do you contextualize the sale and what can you actually deliver and how can you create a track record of what you've done before is a big task. But yeah, finding good salespeople is a, is a, is a very, very hard task in any, any sort of industry, I think, to be honest, sadly. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely hard. One, one interesting thing for me too, with my time at Corsair is, is wondering, how how these traditional um, esports sponsorship brands are going to be able to keep up with those mainstream dollars when you start getting more? You know, obviously you guys have Audi, but when we start getting more of these non-endemic brands coming into the space, I feel like you know in the past um, companies like Corsair have been used to getting that front of jersey sponsorship, but they're just simply not going to have the budget to be able to battle against a Coca Cola or something like that. Do you do you find um, those conversations or that, those thoughts happening for you too? Yeah, I think so. I think we're reaching the point where sort of the endemic partnerships have reached their limits. Um, mm. But I think, you know, you, you can never underestimate the value that the endemic partners actually bring to the table. Because, you know, uh, it, with us, we sort of had to go through the drill as well. That we were very focused originally on on sort of, you know, bro, uh, broke, uh, sort of bridging into the mainstream mm -hmm. and breaking into the mainstream and sort of showcasing that. But actually when Audi comes to us, they're not looking to break into the mainstream. They are the mainstream. They want to break into esports. 
Mm. So, you know, you know, if, if I get a big uh, article in Bild in the, one of the biggest German newspapers where I get Audi signed, my endemic partners would love that. Audi would say, look, I'm already in Bild all the time. I have like four set ads every single week. Why should I care about this? I'm not paying mm. you to get me in Bild. I pay other people to get me in Bild. I pay you to get me on on sort of Reddit and HLTV and all these different places. Um, so I think, you know, someone like Logitech, for example, brings a lot of value to our other partners because Audi and Logitech can sort of sit down together and, and Audi can say, okay, so what, what is actually the 15 years of experience, 20 years of experience you have in this space? What has it taught you and what can you help us? How can you help us execute on this? So I think, you know, even though you're going to see the, the, the paychecks from the endemic partners become relatively smaller compared to the mainstream ones, please don't underestimate the power of them because you need them because they have a gigantic base to talk into the space and they'll bring so much value to your other partners. So yeah, I think what they have to do is, I think actually someone like, now I'm probably not on selling my own product, but they, they need to be more demanding and they say, look, we also bring a lot of value to this partnership and we can help your other partners so we do, shouldn't pay as much as them. And I think, I think that, is, that is completely fair. Yeah, I was I was laughing when you were talking about, you know, how Audi wouldn't care if you get into the mainstream. And I was laughing with my Corsair and Thermaltake hat on because I remember at one stage, you know, thinking like 2014 to 2018, it was every mainstream company's plan that they would get that that lovely dollar from a Logitech, from a Corsair to take them into the mainstream without understanding that, uh, you know, at that stage, especially like Corsair was primarily focused on computer cases and coolers and power supplies. Like, you know, I always had that conversation like, why the hell do you think I care about a billboard? How many people walking yeah. past this billboard are going to buy like a super expensive, nice looking RGB lit um, computer case? Like it's not going to happen. So, you know, and I don't have the budget to pay for things like that. So it made perfect sense to, you know, spend more of those dollars in that, in that gaming and esports market. And the same that you were saying with those brands coming into that space too, you know, yeah. those, those Audis and, and things. Why, why do you think um, car brands have come so hard into the market? Because besides fast food and besides energy drinks, Car brands, I would think, are probably the number one category out of any other sponsor to come into the esports market by far. You've got Honda, Audi, Mercedes, BMW, Toyota, um, you know, Subaru came in a little bit a while ago, you know, et cetera, et cetera. They're all so hardcore into the space. I think, honestly, the, the target audience that they would like to have is the target audience that we have. The target audience that they actually have is a target audience that they, they that, that is very valuable, but they don't necessarily see a, a future in. So, you know, mm-hmm. some of the big German car brands, you would if you did if you did a survey, you would see that the the usual buyer of an Audi, Mercedes, BMW, or Volkswagen, I think Volkswagen skews a little younger, but at least the three other big ones, is typically male and and above fifty years old. Yeah, okay, that's not a, makes sense. That's a valuable audience to be in. I mean, golf companies will tell you that that's a valuable audience, but it's not a sustainable audience. So I think what they're looking at here, they're seeing, okay, look, we have a relatively young audience, uh, typically skews heavy between 15 and and 39. It skews heavily male. It skews heavily tech focused and interested. And they usually like a little bit of action. Like they see all the common denominators of people who love cars. So I think for them, this is a no brainer. And it makes a lot of sense for them, you know. So, so this is exactly the people that they want to talk to. This is the people that they see as, you know, lifetime Audi drivers or BMW drivers or Mercedes drivers who are probably also going to get jobs that pay quite well. So, you know, these are the people, I think from, from a target audience perspective, they're never going to hit anything better than this. Yeah, no, that would definitely make sense. And I've, I've always wondered, you know, if, if that's always thought that's why BMW has gotten so hardcore globally into the esports market. Because I feel like they've lost... 
they've lost the street cred that Mercedes AMG have. How often do you see rappers driving or talking or influencers driving a BMW? I feel like a BMW has has almost, for better or for worse, become a kind of a lawyer's slash real estate agent's car. Whereas, uh, you know, there's nothing cooler than an AMG and also, you know, an RS4 or an RS6 or something like that as well. So, you know, maybe that's why BMW is so hardcore into League of Legends. Yeah, but I think you also have to remember that that one of the, the boundaries that these companies have had is, you know, their marketing budgets are so massive that at a hundred thousand euro deal, it just doesn't make sense for them. It's not worth the hassle to be honest, like not on a global scale at least. So that's why you see BMW grab so many assets at one, you know, this is, Mm -hmm. and again, we're speaking, you know, less than what, 0.2% 0.2% of their marketing budget globally. Like it, it barely makes a dent. So I think for them, it's a no brainer for them. It's always yeah. been a question. Of, do I dare to put my logo on it? Like, do I dare to be associated with this? Cause the potential downside of a crisis or something going wrong is always, you know, a hundred times worse than what they're spending on it and what they could potentially yeah. gain from it. So I think, I think that is the process that they've gone through. And now they've sort of gone a little bit wide and, 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 and take multiple angles. So I think, you know, I think, I think BMW did a quite a well job with, with United and rivalry. I think we're still seeing sort of that lacking that sort of more globally bringing things together activation of it. But I think they have at least given the, the teams quite good toolboxes to work with from, from, from a day-to-day perspective. Yeah, well, that makes perfect sense. I mean, that would explain why they got into league. That's why they got into five teams pretty much at once. And that's that's always a discussion I've had with people who work in traditional media here in Australia. And they tell me the same thing. They say, look, the reason why uh, you know a blue chip large brand isn't interested is because they can't easily place 10, 15 million US dollars in one hit with just one agency that can just go out and handle it. Because if you want to do that, you need to go and talk to five separate teams yourself. You need to go to talk to six different influence agencies yourself. And some of these influence agencies for better or for worse are managed by a 19 year old. Can you trust them? Do you really want yeah. to put your brand behind that? You know, do you want some of the scandals to come out? You know, do you want to, you know, the, the uh, Department of Defense was sponsoring some YouTubers in Australia and then some tweets from nine years ago surfaced, you know, do you want those kind of issues to happen um, with yourself? Probably not. And then I think the other thing you have to remember is that, that these companies are used to working in traditional sports. And traditional sports, historically, most great storylines have been built about, you know, been built on opposition. So, you know, okay. you don't sponsor Barcelona because as much as you gain from the Barcelona fans, as much you lose with the Real Madrid fans. So that's mm-hmm. why they like the approach of taking multiple assets. So they say, look, we're sponsoring League of Legends in general and the best of League of Legends. We're not sponsoring just G2 because then the Fnatic fans doesn't want to buy a BMW because it's a G2 sponsor. So I think, you know, that this is usually their mindset. They, they like to see sort of the positive celebratory wider angle of things instead of saying we are aligning with this brand uniquely. Mm. That's, um, you know, you're, you're the first person within eSports to bring something like that up. I've had multiple people from, from, from traditional sports ask me about that. And every time I've brought that up with people in eSports, they've either not thought about it or they don't agree. So it's really interesting to see you bring that up because they say the same thing. They say, you know, we want to, we, you know, we don't like sponsoring teams. We like sponsoring leagues because that exact same reason, you know, yeah. while there might be 5 million fans of a team, there's also 5 million people who hate them and have hated them for their whole life and for generations and generations within their family. So the last thing you want to do is, is build friends, but also build enemies as a brand at the same time. Exactly. Do you, do brands, do brands tell you that? Like, where'd you get that data from? You know, I think, you know, I've, I've been spending a lot of time sort of looking into uh, regular sports or whatever you want to call it and talking to a lot of people. And I hear that a lot, you know, like, you know, you yeah. know I don't want to sponsor this team because then this team or these teams are going to hate me. I would rather take more of them. And I mean, we had a conversation with a global beer brand 
about doing something just a couple of months ago. And they said, again, look, you know, we don't sponsor Real Madrid. We sponsor the Champions League. Like, you know, that, that's what we do. We need to be across all of it. And we need everybody to, to, to sort of enjoy what we're doing. So I hear that a lot. And I think the reason why you're not hearing it more in esports is the fact that we haven't, because of the sort of the relatively short history of esports, we haven't really created those rivalries and we haven't really played into it. I mean, like, there's not really a... I mean, when have you heard of, of two fan bases getting into a fight, you know, in a, at, a, at an event? It doesn't happen. You know, like there's no two fan bases that absolutely hate each other. It just doesn't exist. You know, so, yeah. so I think we're not there yet. And I think, you know, it, it's something also that we're trying to actively work against getting to. Because I don't think it creates anything. I mean, it was a narrative built by, by the media rights people who wanted to, to say, oh, you know, City and United hate each other so much, you want to watch the game on Sunday. You know, like, it doesn't really help any of us in any other way. So I think it's not something, that, hopefully not something that we're going to see in esports. I mean, if you sponsor Astralis here in the Nordics, nobody was going to hate you for that. You know, some mm-hmm. people might not you know, be fans of someone else. But, you know, look at this, like, look at eSport events. You'll see a family turn up where I remember in Copenhagen where the son was wearing an Astralis jersey, the dad was wearing an Astralis jersey, the daughter was wearing a face jersey, and I think the mother was wearing a face jersey as well. So the family was sort of split in half, and they, you know, they just enjoy themselves and, and had a great time, and they cheered for each other's teams. I mean, it's not, there's nothing negative in it. Hopefully there's no CSGO versus Pro versus Australis rights then like like you have in soccer and football. <laughs> well, we did the, the clash for cash or whatever it was in Ely back in the day. So that, that, that they sort of tried to play up, play it up a little bit. And I think some tournament organizers have tried to force players' hand in saying, oh, you know, F those guys and we'll beat them and blah, blah, blah. But it's, come on. It doesn't. Mm. You know, a lot of people ask me this question and I, and I don't have a great answer. So I'd like to, I'd love to ask you it. Are the fans following their team or are the fans following the players or are they following both? I think it's a combination. I think what, what we're sort of seeing in, you know, you, you have to remember that originally when sports sort of started building up, the interaction point with the players and the teams in general was the media broadcast. So the players didn't own any of their own channels. I mean, like Larry Bird didn't have a Twitter in the NBA where he could say all sorts of stuff. He could do a Mm. a few interviews and he could do some TV commercials, but that was about it. You know, late night talk show shows where he could show a little bit of personality. But now, I mean, like you have players in the NBA, at least they're building sort of media empires around their names. And I mean, like, you know, I was actually listening to a long podcast the other day about this that was really interesting, you know, with the situation where James Harden and the NBA now is trying to force his way out of Houston, where the experts said, look, back in the day, I mean, people would have been burning his jersey. They would have been so mad. They would have been booing him every single time he comes back to Houston if he's traded. But now we're like, oh, it's James Harden. We love James Harden. You know, it's so I I think esport is sort of growing into a world where players very easily can have their own personalities. And I think the problem that a lot of esports teams has is the easy branding exercises to push the players in front of you and say, look, these are the guys. Cause if it goes right, it goes right. And you can get some more sponsors and you have it until the players leave. And if it goes wrong, it's the player's fault. You know, I like, oh, don't have anything to do with this. So I think in esports, we're really going to see sort of the mix between players and teams. But I think, I think you can build a team brand as long as you have a clear direction of what you want to do, what you stand for, how do you communicate? Who do you want to be? Uh, and I think with Astralis, we've actually been able to do that. I mean, I remember when we did the the very first blast here in Copenhagen in 2017, I think it was, in Royal Arena. I was sitting with Semler uh, and Anas after the, the tournament and just, you know, having a beer. And Semler said, I have never, ever tried such a one-sided 
uh, you know, crowd in Europe. Never. And I said, look, this is because people are actually fans of Astralis. They're not just fans of Counter-Strike. They're actual fans of Astralis. I think that's what we want to build. Uh, so I think, you know, putting the players front and center is a decent strategy and it works in some regards, but I think you have to find the balance. Mm. I think driving the actual fans thing is interesting as well. There was a, there was a quote from Clinton Sparks, you know, X phase current exit that I kept reusing all the time that I use again, which is asking, you know, a lot of esports teams need to ask themselves, are they popular or are they influential? And I would argue, I feel a lot of the time, maybe the Overwatch League teams and some of these other franchise leagues, the teams there are popular, but not influential. You know, I think influential is like you were saying, when a crowd is is cheering for you and actively, you know, booing or they don't care about the other team. I think influential is FaZe doing a meetup at New York City and getting 16 city blocks of people to turn up to see them. You know, it's yeah. not just, um, it's not just how many Twitter followers you have, you know, it's, it's, it's um, you know, how many people can put bums on seats and they're wearing your jerseys while they're in there as well. Yeah, so for us, we work with the term ambassadors. An ambassador is someone who's proud to be associated with you and want to wear a jersey. So we've sort of, in our funnel marketing, we've sort of set up different paths. Like, this is what an ambassador is. The rest is just followers. Because I think, you know, if you look at it, the average follower on a eSport fan is going to follow, what, like 14 different teams on Twitter? That doesn't mean he's a fan of 14 different teams. It just means he likes to hear what's going on. So for us, like, that's sort of our, our path is we want to build, you know, we want to build real fans and we want to reward the real fans for being real fans. Yeah, I wonder if I wonder if people are ever going to change or I don't know if grow out of it is the right word or not. But you know, like you were saying before, people don't seem to hate other teams. It seems like a lot of the time that if you're a fan of of a game, you're often a fan of esports as a whole. Or if not, you're just a fan of the game as a whole. But you don't you don't see that within soccer or football. You don't see people equally follow, you know, the leagues in Brazil the same they will the EPL, the same they will, you know, the A League in Australia. They'll primarily just follow their one team and where they play. But often you know, people will be using platforms like Duke.gg because they just want a hit of Counter-Strike and all they want is good teams to be playing and that's all they care about. You know, they're a fan of CS and sometimes they might even watch a bit of Overwatch. Yeah, because that's, that's, that's what we're missing sometimes, right? Like you don't have an association by city where if you live in Copenhagen, you're an Astralis fan because it's Copenhagen Astralis or whatever it is. And you don't have what I would call environmental exposure, which is, you know, you have Liverpool fans who are sitting on their dad's knee when they were five watching Liverpool games. So, of course, they're also a Liverpool fan. I think mm. we don't really have that historically. I think we'll start seeing that now. I mean, just look at, we just started selling sort of baby gear with Astralis logos. And given the amount of stuff that we've sold of that, there's going to be a lot of Astralis fans in, in, in 15, <laughs> 18 years time because they've been been exposed to it very early on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but I think that's that's just that's just going to come with time. I mean, to be honest, it's going to come with you know, we we also speak about you know first generation Astralis fans, people who didn't know who we are until they saw us on national TV here. Like they don't have all the reference points that we do into sort of our history. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, it is what it is, and I think you know it, it's going to grow. And I think what we what we really want to make sure that we see is is that this is not just a fad. You know, like this is not just oh, this is what we did. These those you know, remember twenty nineteen and twenty twenty. You know, we did the. We did the contract thing and now we're doing something else. We want it to be a lifelong thing in the same way that people are football fans or basketball fans. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. And I guess it, you know, that really plays to what you're saying, which is a long-term growth for you guys. You don't want to buy teams in 20 different games like some other, you know, VC funded esports orgs do. You want to know what you do well and do it well. And I and I guess your personal movements through, you know, pay testament to that too, separating from the esports tournament and going, no, teams is where I want to be, you know, primarily with my with my one baby, which is the CSGO, but also with some other high quality esports as well, like League of Legends. Yeah, but for the games where we're really looking at it, we're looking at legacy. And then we're looking at what I call the, the, the sort of the detachment of viewership, which means that 
what we don't want to see is we don't want to see player base and viewership base be pretty much similar. That's sort of what we've seen historically in Overwatch, uh, mm-hmm. which is uh, that's not a good sign for us because that means as soon as the next cool FPS games comes comes out like Valorant, player base dips, viewer base dips. Mm-hmm. With what you see Counter Strike is you know Apex Legends come out and player base dips, but viewership base keeps the same. So that means like I don't really care what I'm playing, but I'm watching Counter Strike. Like, and that, that's what we want to see because we see that in League of Legends and we see that in, in FIFA as well is, you know, even though I don't play anymore, I, I watch it because I like the game. And I think that that's what you want to see ultimately. And I, and I think, you know, can someone like can someone like Fortnite get there? Maybe, but, but it's not there yet. It doesn't have the media product. And then obviously competitive integrity is important to us. And, you know, when people ask me, I, the question I get the most is probably why are we not in Fortnite? Because that's what everybody here, their kids talking about when I talk to potential partners and then I'm at the panels. And yeah. I always look, you know, we want to put ourselves in a situation to win. We want our model to be effective. And our model is not effective if our player jumps out the plane and lands on a frying pan and the other player lands on a bazooka. Like you can have the best mental fortitude in the world and you can have the best sleep and the best way to eat and be prepared. That doesn't help you against the bazooka. So, you know, it's great entertainment, but I wouldn't say it's competitive in the right manner that it should be. Mm. So, you know, talking about sending out that legacy then, how's how's the League of Legends team going versus the CSGO team? Like obviously your expectations are to set up that same legacy in, in that game as well. Yeah, I think it, it's it's been sort of, it's been a quite a learning experience for us. Um, it's actually been a lot of the things that we said when we started we didn't want to do because uh, I think we made a lot of sort of the rookie mistakes that 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 we sort of see other people make, which is we had too many chefs in the kitchen. You know, we have too we, we weren't creating the right accountability system. And I think, honestly, I think it also speaks a lot to how the league was originally founded. Because of the delay of the dispersion of the franchise spots, we were accepted officially into the LEC, I think it was about like three weeks before free agency in the very first year. So we had like, we were scrambling. And I think the big mistake that a lot of teams does is they build from from down up. So they find the players first, then they find a coach, and then they build upwards. What does it need to see? But what we've done now is we've basically just cleaned the slate, and now we're building downwards. So we go to Casper and say, look, this is your responsibility. How do you want to build this team? And then he'll start building from top down. Okay, so the first thing we hired was what we call our performance manager, which is the leader of everything in the team. And then we hire our team manager, then we hire our coach, and then we hire our assistant coach. Then we set the way that we want to play and how do we want to do things, and then we find the players. Because I think the other way around is, is, is the problem. I, 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 you know, we had great players, but we had the typical fallacy of all esports teams. We were massively inconsistent. And I would rather start lower and then grow incrementally, but really build systems and trust that actually works than just be flying all over the place and then being second and then being eighth and then being third and then being 10th. Like that's, that's just not who we are and that's not something that we can stand by. So I think this year you're going to see the first sort of real Astralis model built League of Legends team. Um, and I think it's going to be a positive thing for a lot of people. We're not going to win the, the whole thing, that's for sure. But what you want to see is you want to see the growth and you want to see the, 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 the sort of uh, the getting better every single week instead of just being all over the place. Yeah, I really feel like that's the, I guess, the, the new, if I was to say, 
it kind of sounds wanky when I think about it, saying it out loud, but the new age thinking of how to build an esports team. You know, I talk to talent esports and they're the same. They said, the first thing we do is we go and find the best coach. You know, we do grueling long interviews and find the best coach we possibly can. And then we give him a budget and we say, look, it's your job. Here's what we expect out of you. Here's your budget. Go and find your players. And he does his own real life football manager 2020, 2021. He does his own League of Legends manager and he finds his best players and they trust him. But he's, you know, it's put on his shoulders. It's not, it's no longer like we talked about ages ago with, it's just a kind of a boys club of, you know, you've got to pick up a a, five, a team of five and you know that two of them aren't really that great, but you know that the other three won't come if those two don't. And then you just really hope they do well. It's it's not like that at all. You're, you're building yeah, a machine. And this is, again, this is back to the sort of the fallacy of esports. And it's easy to say because, like, we are in a financial situation where we can think long term. So it's easy to say that everybody should think long term. Um, yeah. I think, like, just look at the NIP Counter-Strike roster. You know, they were clearly dysfunctional for a very, very long time. But making the decision to cut someone like Get Right it's a tough decision. It's going to cost you sponsors. It's going to cost you jersey sales. It's going to cost you mousepad sales. But once they finally got around and actually did it and cleaned the slate and built a team the way that they wanted to do, they're doing as good, if not better, on a budget that's maybe a fourth of what they used to pay. So, you know, really kudos to what they've been able to pull off there. But I think having the guts to make that decision is, is what we've always prided ourselves in separating us. So when we were sitting down this offseason, we were like, okay, look, the answer is pretty clear. This is what we've always said that we would do because this is what I always said about our partners. I've been saying it for four years now and it hasn't happened yet, so <laughs> that's a good one. But I said, well, it's going to happen this summer. I always said, look, at some point, this Counter-Strike roster is not going to win everything. And what, you, what I can guarantee you is that we will not be afraid to take five steps back in order to take eight forward. Like it's, we'll, we'll rather do that instantly and just rip the bandaid off than just mm-hmm. being slowly, slowly decaying with the same roster down the line. And I think giving Lucas and uh, Andreas the, the breaks that they needed, that was sort of just rip off the bandaid. <clears throat> Done, you're not playing for three months. Get out of here, relax. And then we were 15 in the world and now we're back to number two and a close contenders number one. If, if there were physical events, we would be number one. I can I can say that much. <laughs> uh, so so yeah. So we 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 did the same in League of Legends, and I'm I'm really excited to see sort of how it pans out. I mean, obviously you never know, but when I look into the to the room where the coaches and the analysts and and everyone is sitting, um, I feel an enormous sense of pride. To be honest, what they have done and the system that they've built is is one of the coolest things I've ever seen in esports. Mm. Yeah, it's cool to hear about the long-term thinking. And I guess if there was a game that was anything but long-term thinking in the past was CSGO and in the present is probably Fortnite. So it's good It's good to see you guys going with that. And I guess adding to the Fortnite thing as well, like you were saying, it's Epic Games has made it very, very clear they don't care at all about esports teams. And I think that's a big part of it too. You know, you don't have that asset like you were saying. You know, how, how many promos that w- did Epic cut together for the Fortnite World Cup for teams? That unless you already have a strong name in content like FaZe, you know, it's really hard to play into that market. How many people know what Team Booger plays for? I, I, I forget what the team he plays for most of the time. And he's the kid that won it. And he's the kid that got millions of followers simply from one tournament. But still, who's he attached to? I don't know. Yeah, but, the, but the problem is that, that Fortnite sort of uh, from a viewership experience is very similar to golf. You know, you're 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 dropped in this field. You're there by yourself, and you know, Epic sort of. I, I give you kudos for recognizing this. You know, if they really want to get great viewership, they're going to get it through the individual streams of the players. Like, yeah, what are you going sure. to do? You're going to hover everything all over the place. You can never catch all the action. How are you going to do that? I think, like when we spoke about Fortnite originally, it was like they cannot solve the the commercial product. And I think going individual stream is actually really really cool. I love that the fact that they've done that. So I think it it is just a game that is meant to build individuals. So yeah, you could have a golf team, but Nobody would really care about the team. They would care about the players. I like that explanation. I can't believe I've never thought of that before. That's perfect. 
I'm, gonna, I'm waiting out for the first ever golf organization then. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen one yet. No, no, maybe it'll come out. And I guess that's, yeah, that's pretty similar. It is like golf following those people around. I do remember watching like the first ever PUBG tournament and, uh, you know, at least Fortnite's fixed some of those problems where, you know, you switch between one place to another and it takes 10 seconds to draw the map yeah. around the person because the, the game's so graphically, you know, intensive and things like that too. So yeah. thankfully we're past, we're past those days and we're past, you know, I was a, I was a Battlefield 2 competitive player. Um, that was my first game and, you know, I went into Bad Company too, hoping it would be an eSport and very similar. You know, that was a game that was very not an eSport because to um, to shoutcast, you need to sit up on a cliff, join a team side as a sniper and zoom in with binoculars. And that's that's how you would commentate a game. So Ouch. thankfully we're out of those days. Yeah. 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 So what's the what's the focus for you right now? Like where where are the gaps? What are you what are you trying to fix up? What is Australis not doing well enough in your eyes that you want to do better as a whole, like as a, as an entire company, whether it be performance, business, otherwise? I, I think, you know, I obviously can only mainly speak about sort of my side of the company. Uh, sure. I, I think, you know, my big focus point, both from sort of a commercial and a marketing perspective, is is to become more than a lighthouse. And, you know, people always talk about being a lighthouse, which is really cool. But the problem with a lighthouse is it only sort of shines its lights in one very narrow direction and everything else is darkness. So so usually you will see a sort of like our light will go slowly around and then, oh, there's a game and the light is on you and then it's gone again and it's dark for quite a while. I think like for us, the challenge is now like sort of how do we become a bigger part of people's lives? Because again, I, I, I did a lot of comparison to normal sports and I think it's relevant. You know, the curse and the blessing of being FC Copenhagen is the fact that you're FC Copenhagen. People in Copenhagen is, is sort of in, in, has, a, has a tendency to love you, but people who are not from Copenhagen don't care about you. Like, to be honest, like this, but you have a big stadium in the middle of Copenhagen you, and you will always be there and you will always take up space in people's minds. So how do we move Astralis from being this weird thing in the cloud that you sometimes catch on TV? And if, if we didn't qualify for the tournament or we, if something else should happen, you don't see us at all. Like, how do we change that? And I think that is really one of the interesting challenges that we're working with. And I, we do have quite some good ideas on that. I think there's a lot of different ways you can go. Is, is, it, is it some sort of physical manifestation of, of Astralis? Is it, is it sort of the ecosystems I was talking about with a more Danish-speaking sort of ecosystem that does a little bit more than just eSport that goes a little bit beyond gaming or, or does various different things? I think that is the challenge that I'm, I'm really trying to, to solve. And I think we're, 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 we're pretty good on our way to find the right solutions to it but yeah ultimately we want to create a brand that isn't just oh counter-strike and the five players yeah that's great like we want astralis to be more we want astralis to be a feeling we want astralis to be an association so when you see it on a building whether that be barcelona or that be los angeles you're thinking oh those are the guys and i think you know at the end of the day, what we really would like people to think of is, is sort of what we always said as our purpose and our, our purpose is to to champion the positive potential of gaming because you know i'm sitting here as someone who is an adult now and who has kids and most of my great friends i've learned through esports and through gaming mm. and it is and it's been such a positive force in my life and we believe that it can it, it, no it, it is a positive force in millions and millions and millions of people's lives in so many different ways and we want to be a part of showcasing the good that it can create instead of talking about the bad mm, that's interesting i mean it makes sense to me you know if, if you were to put that in another company's perspective if you want to make the biggest company in the world you need to be something that you know impacts people all the time or as a necessity you know every time i pick up my iphone i'm reminded that i have an iphone and when i talk about it i have an iphone so i yeah. guess you know you're you're saying that aspect that if anyone thinks gaming 
at all, especially esports, you want them to think Astralis at the same time. Exactly. Yeah. So if uh, people want to follow you online, uh, where's the best place to do so? Uh, I'm, I'm one of those like notoriously bad people at actually updating stuff. So I always get told by Stane Lawrence and our head of comms, ah, remember to use your Twitter and then I use the Twitter for a week and then I forget about it. But I'll, I'll, I'll try to, to update it more. I think, you know, either LinkedIn on where you can just Google up my name is good and then or Twitter at Jacob LK. That's like probably the two spaces you'll see me most active. Yeah, fantastic. Hey, well, it's been it's been really good to chat. I mean, this is the first time we've pretty much ever talked besides a couple of emails back and forward. And you definitely taught me some stuff throughout here. I like the lighthouse idea. I like the golf idea as well. And, and it's cool to see the long-term thinking from you guys. I'm going to be really interested in talking to some other teams about, you know, how they create their esports teams these days. And one thing I did forget to tell you actually is you were, you know, you were talking about those VC and those, those um, teams that are flush with cash that that have come and uh, now some of them are starting to go. And there's a term people love to use in Australia, which are money orgs. That's what they call them. So the teams that come in with the money and simply by having the money, they can afford to pay the players triple anybody else's salaries. But unfortunately, when you're spending 99% of your, um, you know, total outgoing on salaries, your company doesn't last too long and you fold and, go off into the distance unless you find the right partners of course <laughs> yeah unless you can find other more crazy people to give you even more money than you can spend <laughs> for sure but it's pretty hard unless you've got a couple million subscribers on youtube to get that kind of cash yeah <clears throat> yeah yeah fantastic so thanks jacob once again and thanks everyone who's watching so if you're watching live on twitch linkedin listening to the audio only or video only version of the podcast please feel free to give us a rating on apple podcasts uh, you can listen to us on spotify if you're not already uh, if you're watching live on twitch please hit us up with that follow and if you're on youtube hit us with a subscribe we've got plenty more content coming out uh, every single week uh, the next couple of guests we've got are some more interesting ones i'm hoping you're enjoying the change in the types of content we're doing doing things a bit more casually a bit less scripted and I hope you're enjoying the new types of guests coming on. Thanks, guys. Bye for now.